Uh, I get to uh, bring the second part of the church on its knees. I like, Jack and Marie, how you did that flashing thing with every day this week. Where did they go? Kids' church. That's very nice. Um, so, but I get to bring the message about power. And uh, power is a useful thing. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't really know how to function past about 9am without a bit of power. I'm not being really spiritual. I just mean electricity. I wouldn't be able to make my coffee or I wouldn't be able to turn on my phone, things like that. Who, who's dependent on power? Yes, our Western society is. Um, while we're away this year on one of our trips, we have a lot of things happen Um, I think we actually say there's not a set that we do as verses that we don't get off stage and something um, majorly has happened technically or something. It's just laughable that we can't get through a set without something happening. Uh, So much so, I think our first set, Luke was, our first ever show we did in the States as verses, I think Luke got so excited he jumped off his platform like in a drop or something and he picked up so much speed that he actually fell off stage. There has just been uh, time after time where we're just like, oh, you couldn't even dream that up. That was ridiculous. But there was one time we were uh, about to lead worship at a festival and um, huge Christian music festival, so big that within the Christian music festival, there was a youth camp that you can opt into. And so a youth camp alone is a huge event to take place, but this was just one of the options. That's the kind of thing that we were at. And uh, Versus was the music team for the week for the youth camp. And so we were leading worship and it came to the first session of the first night and the kids were excited and uh, we were ready to go. And we got through one song. It was stinking hot, really hot, the middle of summer. And we got through one song and then uh, we could hear some glitches starting to happen in the sound system. We were like, oh, here it comes. And, uh, but we got halfway through the second song and we lost all power. And when you're an electronic trio, uh, power kind of helps. And so we're kind of checking everything and trying to uh, figure out what's gone wrong. And to my delight and Joel's dismay, we find out that Joel's mic is the only thing working. And so I kind of look at him as if, well, it's all you, buddy. What are you going to do? And uh, he kind of launched out into an impromptu preach and you all would have been very proud of him. He handled it with such grace. He did amazing. We got off stage, we was like, great job, Joel. We just closed it down there. But we need power. We needed power that day and uh, we need power in the physical sense, but we need power in the spiritual sense as well. Because as Christians, we are called to actually make a difference. And we are here for God's plan. And we're not to be passive on this earth, just waiting for our time to go to the kingdom. Uh, but we are here for a purpose. And so this morning, I want us to take a look at the power that comes through prayer. And um, over the last few months, we've been looking at different angles of prayer, but mostly it's been based on individual prayer, personal devotion. In this series, we are taking a look at what it means for a church to be a church of prayer. Because when God spoke about his church, he actually said that my house would be a house of prayer, not a house of great sermons, 
not a house of great coffee or fellowship or worship and all those things are great, but what he, what he wanted it to be identified as is a house of prayer. And so to do this this morning, we're going to have a look at a few different parts of Scripture, but our main chunk of Scripture is coming from Acts 12. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, if you don't, that's totally fine. It'll be up on the screen. But if you want to follow along, we're going to take a look at a story that takes place in Acts 12. It says this, It was about the time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this met, uh, was met with the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize, seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. And after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for the public trial after Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was uh, to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping before, between two soldiers. What peace must you have before the night of your execution that you can sleep uh, between the two soldiers? But here he was, uh, bound with two chains, and the sentry stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. He must have been sleeping very deeply. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. And then the angel of the Lord said to him, put on your clothes and your sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing, or whether it was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the, second, the first and the second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It just opened for them by itself, and they went through. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything that the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, and where people had gathered and they were praying. And Peter knocked on the outer entrance and a servant named Rhonda uh, came to answer the door. She recognized Peter's voice and she was so overjoyed that she did overjoyed that she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. It goes on and they have this conversation back and forth. No, he's really there. No, I promise. No, you silly. Don't. And open the door. And Peter was there. A miraculous account of what happens when a church prays. Uh, The author was not mistaken in making a connection where it says uh, that Peter was in chains, but the church prayed. He's deliberately making a connection that because of the praying church, there was a release of chains. Now in the opening few verses, you can see the kind of situation the church was in. It says that some Christians had been taken into prison, that James, the brother of John, had already been beheaded. Recently, Stephen had been stoned and killed to death. And now the leader of the church, Peter, 
has been taken into chains and they didn't kill him straight away because they're waiting to make a spectacle of his death on the last night of the festival. You could, the church could be forgiven for being a bit scared to gather together. Uh, that kind of situation enough would, could muster out any person's faith. But here we see that the church gathered together. Sometimes uh, we can neglect to gather together because we have a busy weekend. Or we've got too much on. And we lose sight that actually gathering together isn't really about us. It's about that we would join our faith together that people's chains would be released. But they came together and they fervently believed for the breaking of chains. For these early believers, gathering together wasn't an option. It wasn't an option on the, on the weekend schedule. In fact, it was a matter of life and death. And it is for us too, we just forget it. Because it's not our lives that are in the stake of life and death, but it's those who don't know Christ yet. And our comfort blinds us to the need to gather together and get on our knees for the lost and dying world. Hebrews 10.25 says this, Do not let us neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. I love that that, uh, the author used the word, but the church prayed. He didn't use while the church prayed and then the church went and prayed. He used but as if, I know it's a bad situation, but don't worry, the church prayed. I wonder if we could get to a place where our faith is so encouraged and we gather together and there is power seen when we gather and get on our knees that every time we get a bad report, we can say, oh, we've heard this, but don't worry, the church is praying. What an incredible place. What an incredible thing to be a part of. Once he said, but the church prayed, all of the chains and the 16 guards and the gates and the jail that Herod had all seemed to set up because he thought that was fail-proof, it just seemed weak in the light of prayer. How is it that a small group of people gathering together in prayer is the catalyst for a miracle? To answer this, our understanding of power And God's power needs to be put in its right perspective. You see, power is not something that we just have because we're Christians. Yes, we're overcomers, and yes, we are more than conquerors, but not by ourselves. Power is not a position or a resource that you obtain. It is something you connect to. Power is transferred through intimacy with God. What was the church doing when they prayed fervently? They were engaging with God's presence. They were beholding him. They were seeing him in his rightful place. They were petitioning him. They were crying out for mercy. And while it may not sit well with us to think that we don't have everything we already need because we're saved, that sometimes there's a narrative that goes around that... um, 
maybe in Christian circles or from platforms when people get really excited or something and say, you've got everything you, you already need. That's not true. He's got everything you need. You still need to go to him. He didn't leave us with a Christian survival pack with the 101 things you need for spiritual victory and I'll see you when you get to the kingdom. He wanted this to be a relationship between his bride and his son that we would continually need to go to him to get what we need to do what he's called us to do. Jesus gives us a clear example of this. In John 5, 19 to 24, it says this, Then Jesus said to them, For sure, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He does, he does what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son does also. The father loves the son and shows the son everything he does. Jesus Christ is telling his disciples, I can do nothing unless I go to the father first. Jesus can do nothing? Why do we think it's any different for us? Why do we think that we can just do all the things that we know to do and then expect there to be power if we don't go to the Father for it? We can never underestimate the power that we get when we connect through prayer. We need God, church. We need Him. We need His presence. Which brings me to a bit of teaching that I want us to look at. And some of you may have heard Uh, this before, but it comes from a sermon that Jensen Franklin shared at Hillsong Conference this year. I wasn't there, you may have been. And then touch on a bit that Beth Moore shared as well, but I really felt the Lord um, press on me to share a bit of it because our eyes need to be open to our need of God. We need to have an understanding that we cannot make an eternal difference without His presence. And so if we keep in mind as I share about this next part that we're talking about, the power that comes through prayer, I just pray that God would begin to minister already through here. You know, um, there's this thing that happens to, oh, I think most preachers, but you work a few days and you do your sermon, it takes a few days, and then it happened again last night, I finished speaking it out and go, oh, great. And then the moment I finish, I hear that niggling thought, that's stupid, and, and we, I need God's presence as I speak this morning. We need God's presence as we open up our hearts and listen. And so I am believing that God does that, that, Lord, you would flood this place. Let your presence fall in a thick and new way, Lord, that our hearts and our spirits would be desperate, that we wouldn't sit here in routine, God, but our, let our spirits cry out for you. Thank you, Lord. And so, in Ezekiel 43, God is speaking to Ezekiel in this, in this passage, and he's talking about um, the new temple that's going to be built. Why does there be, need to be a new temple? Well, uh, in Jerusalem, uh, everything was going well until Babylon came and destroyed the city, and the temple was left in ruins. Children of Israel were taken captive and taken into exile into Babylon. 
And so they had been here for a while and God begins to speak to Ezekiel in a dream and in a vision to tell him what the new temple is going to be like. And so in this new temple, God starts talking about the glory that's going to be filled in it, what the gates are going to look at, where you're going to enter and where you're going to leave and all of the amazing things that this new temple is going to look like. And then in Ezekiel 43, 13, he starts getting really practical. And he says this to Ezekiel, there are measurements of the altar in, you will use the measurements of the altar in the long cubit. That cubit being a cubit and a handbreadth. Now stay with me. You see, they didn't use the metric system. They didn't pull out their tape measure to figure out how we're going to build the temple. They used a system called the cubit system. And that was an easy enough system. I don't know how accurate it was. It was actually the measurement of your forearm. And so hopefully that was the same contractor on the whole job because it would just be a mess. But... He is telling him the, uh, the measurement that they're going to use to build the new temple. And a cubit is uh, it's meant to be the tip of your finger down to the bend of your elbow. And if you want to, you can try and do this, but it's meant to be, this works, um, it's meant to be six handbreadths up the arm until you get to the bend of your elbow. It's meant to be six handbreadths as a cubit. And this part of the arm is the creative part. You, uh, you can imagine with your mind and you can dream with your heart, but it's with this part of the arm that, that you write and you type and you paint and you create and you can cook and you can dig and you can, you can design. It, this is the creative part of the arm. There's amazing ability and potential in this part of your arm. But God says something interesting to Ezekiel. He says, you're going to use that system, the cubit system, because the old temple was actually built with just the cubit system. But this time, you're going to use the cubit and a handbreadth. So it wouldn't just be six hands. This time, it would use the creative part of one, two, three, four, five, six. But there's going to be a seventh hand that is going to be used to build the next temple. And God was saying, I know the old temple was built with that old measurement, but this one is going to be built with a new measurement, a cubit and a handbreadth. Because although this part of the arm can create, it's this part of the arm that brings the power. And there's going to be a seventh hand involved in building the temple. You see, numbers are quite important in the Bible, and six uh, is actually the number of men. More specifically, it means the imperfection of man's work. But seven, seven's the number of God. It is only the seventh hand upon which they, uh, upon their work, which will perfect the imperfect work that we bring to God. And God is saying that there is all these things you can do. You can build the greatest business. You can build the biggest corporation. You can excel in all that you do. But it will have no eternal value unless my hand is upon it. 
And God was telling Ezekiel the exact measurement, six handbreadths and one more, making sure that there was no mistake that yes, the children of Israel would be able to rebuild the temple again, but it would not be a place of his presence because of anything they did, but because his hand was upon it. And it is with us too, church. We can do all the programs and all the activities and we can know how to do the worship service and do the preaching, but it is nothing without God's hand upon it. It is interesting that God is showing Ezekiel this this vision. Now the timing is slightly unclear, but while the children were either coming out of Babylon or were about to. And Babylon was a very different place to Jerusalem. Babylon was a, was a place where everybody was about themselves. It was, uh, it was such a godless place. And, uh, and he is, he's giving Ezekiel this vision about the new temple and how they're going to build God's place as they're coming out of this place that has a mindset where they do not need God. And so you can understand why he's telling him, I know you built the temple the old way with just your work, but this time you're going to have to do it with my hand. Beth Moore shared an amazing message about the Babylonian mindset and uh, she, she pulled out this verse and it says, this is Babylon's motto. You know how you go to the states and things, Queensland, the sunshine state. If Babylon had a motto, it was this, I am and there is no one besides me. And uh, Isaiah 47 verse 8 actually has God speaking to Babylon and he says this, Now listen, you lover of pleasure, lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am and there is no one beside me. In verse 10 he says, you've trusted your own wickedness and you have said, nobody sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am, and there's no one beside me. I read these passages of scripture and I'm actually really convicted because I see a scary resemblance of our culture. Not just the culture of the world, I mean the culture that also seeps into the church. That somehow the work of our ministry, the work of our hand is worthy of glory that our ministry is worthy of praise. And I see it lounging in our security, God saying, we are so comfortable here in the West. We have brothers and sisters in the persecuted church sitting in cells right at this moment, praying for their lives. I wonder, could we be the church that stands fervently for them? Or are we comfortable? Lover of pleasure, he says. We are addicted to it. We are addicted to it, sometimes more than his presence. Shopping makes us feel good. Movies make us forget everything and and Netflix or food or indulgences and holidays. And I'm not saying that God isn't the giver of good things, but we are not called to be lovers of things of this world. We are called to be lovers of him. And if I am honest, those verses look far too much like my life sometimes where I will plan for the I am and I don't really take into consideration the dying world around me. 
Romans 12 verse 2 says this, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Church, we are meant to stand out. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out brings the best out of you and develops well-formed maturity. I pray that we would not have an underlying motto that I am and there's no one besides me, but that he is the great I am and I am called to love the person beside me. It's far too easy to think that's such a dangerous mindset, that thing about yourself. But church, let me tell you, A church that neglects to pray says the exact same thing. We just say it more as, I am and the work I've done is enough. A church who neglects to pray or seek his presence is a church that builds without the seventh hand. A church who neglects to pray will lack power, hands down. There's no real transformation and there might be individual stories of transformation, but God's hand is what brings transformation, that breaks chains. All we need is presence, church. We need a hunger that grips us, that we are never satisfied with church without his presence. God says, my house will be a house of prayer. Let us not get to the prayer cards and think, oh, they're praying for a long time. That's a long prayer. We need God, church. In Acts 12, we see this this group of believers under persecution. They would have been, I, I I can imagine they would have been fearful. Christians are being killed and taken into captivity and put in prison left, right and centre. There would have been some fear and some obstacles to gather together, but here they put aside their comfort of sleep and commitments and probably leisure and to pray for the release of a prisoner. Is that not the perfect picture of a church? That we would gather together, that the chains would be broken over prisoners? Not just literal prisoners, spiritual prisoners. They knew they needed God and that they were desperate for his presence. Unlike the Babylonians who said, I am and there's none besides me. They knew that he was the I am. That he was the I am that was enough to free the Israelites. That he was the I am that made the covenant with Abraham. He's the I am, the way, the truth and the life. And he would be the I am who would deliver Peter. There would be none besides God. Only he would get the glory. It was the effective and persistent prayer of a faithful church that saw God's hand move and chains to be broken. This is such a clear example of what we need to look like. Notice uh, when I read the story about Peter in the prison, the angel actually has a unique instruction for him. Uh, It says a light came on in the prison as the angel appeared. I know if uh, anyone walks into my room and turns a light on while I'm asleep, I'm awake. But Peter was so at peace with what God had planned for him that the angel had to strike him on the side. Get up. 
get up, it's time to go. But he has an unusual instruction for him. He says, put your shoes on. Get your outer garment and tie it tight. Get ready. You would think an angel coming into prison could have wholly hovered those shoes right on. Just like in Snow White when the birds bring Snow White her dress. Put on the outer garment for Peter. But that's not what he did. He instructed Peter in what he could do so God could do what he could. See, God won't do for you what he's called you to do. The reason that there was a seventh hand is because there were six before it. And there are things that God will call us to do as a church. Yes, there will be service and yes, there will be a, a gathering together. But, but if we don't do what God's called us to do, just how Peter did, put your shoes on, get ready. I'm about to make my hand cause and form a miracle that thousands of years from now, people will be getting and be encouraged by faith in. We need to do what God calls us to do so he can do what only he can do. And it is only via prayer and connecting with his presence that we can find out what he wants us to do. Let us not be people who just assume we know what God wants us to do because we've always done it. He said to the Babylonians that your understanding and your wisdom has led you astray, which means don't rely on what you think you know about church or about God or about what, he, what you think he might want you to do. Continually come to me. Don't lean on your intellect. Lean into my presence. And it's there that he shows us how he wants us to walk forward. Who knows? He might have wanted uh, the next time he, someone's in prison, he might want them to walk out barefoot because they're in a hurry. You need to wait for instruction from God in his presence. You'd also notice that uh, he, walked him a, he walked him a block and then the angel left him. Again, he needed the angel to get through those chains. He needed the angels to open the city gates. He needed the angel to keep the guards asleep. But he let him walk the path that he knew how to walk There are things that God is calling us to do, ways to walk that we need to follow in so he can put that seventh hand upon us. We cannot be fooled into thinking that we can make do without God's presence. We cannot. We cannot be effective in his kingdom without his presence. Jesus couldn't do anything and neither can we without his presence. And we receive it through prayer. It's released through our prayers. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, if uh, James, you can hear me in the baby room. Maybe he can't. I'm waving at him. I I deliberately am going to finish up a touch early this morning because uh, I don't think the preaching is the most important thing today. I don't think the worship is. I don't think the fellowship beforehand is or after. I actually think the most important thing is that we as a church have a time to respond to Jesus in our heart. And that if we're known to be a house of prayer, 
that it wouldn't just be something that we skip over. And in 2 Chronicles 7.14, it says this. If my people, my God-defined people, respond by humbling themselves, praying, seeking my presence, and turning their backs on their wicked lives, I'll be ready for you. I'll listen from heaven. I'll forgive their sins and restore their land to health. From now on, and I want to speak this prophetically into this house this morning. From now on, I'm alert day and night to the prayers offered in this place. Believe me, I have chosen and sanctified this temple that you have built. My name is stamped upon it forever and my eyes are on it and my heart is always in it. This morning, if you would mind standing, thanks James. What we're going to do this morning is I'm not going to ask for a response of, oh, did God make you feel bad or something that you weren't praying? That is not my intention. It's actually my intention to stir faith in this house, to realize that a church that gets on its knees and prays can actually see chains fall off prisoners' lives. And... uh, If you have any prayer need this morning, I mean, if there are any type of chains that you need to be broken in your life or someone's life that you're praying for, would you just quickly come and stand at the front? If there's any prayer needs.